Hey Jack, I'm Josh. I don't know if we've met before. Josh, it's a pleasure. I used to play Discap Team Challenge probably in like 13, 14, 15. Yep. I remember playing you guys when there was a playoff and was it Jason and Jamin who won? Yeah, it was, who beat us in the dark. Yep. Me and Harry. Oh, it was you and Harry. Okay. Oh, it was yeah. Harry. Okay, yeah. That was an epic playoff. It was dark, and we were just running back and forth on the 1-9. So you play one, and then uh, nobody wins. You come back, and you play nine. Nobody wins. You come back, you play one. Was it one on 18? Am I remembering that wrong? No, you're remembering it wrong. Okay, yeah, it maybe it was 18 one. to force the playoff. Okay, that, that makes sense. Did you yeah, finish on 18, Jason? So that one, everybody was waiting for us. We were on a mixed card. Jess and I came back and had beat... Ray Albino and I forget who his partner was. And because oh, we on. won, that tied it, which pushed everything to the playoff. Oh, oh okay. Uh, it could have been Ray and Kristen Moran, Ray and Andy. I don't know. Josh, what's your last name? Win, W-I-N-N. Yeah, okay. I see your name. I'm... He stalked you before. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a I file on you. seeing you on my roster <laughs> sheet, yeah. <laughs> what's uh, his, um, the rating, the us rating? The what we think? <laughs> What we think <laughs> on Josh Wynn, I'll look Josh it up. <laughs> I'd be curious to see what Jason would say my rating is for those two categories. That'd be interesting. What year is it? Any year. I feel like I've been the same for most years, maybe. <laughs> I'm sure it's team challenge. It's not PGA. Because I feel like your uh, PGA play has dramatically improved since when I started playing with you. Agreed. King of casual rounds. I think I'm taking that title from you now. Nice. You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> PDGA has you at 974. Is that right? Yeah, that's like a okay. new rating. It's a career high. Yep. Yeah, I guess like a little backstory. I started playing disc golf in I think the first time I ever played was actually in 2009. I was really into skateboarding then. And there was amazing skateboard parks where I lived in Amarillo, Texas. The guy I met at the skate park also played disc golf. And he was an amazing skateboarder. And back then, I thought he was an amazing disc golfer. And I wish I could know like how good he really was. But he could throw so far. And obviously, I could throw you know a 50-foot hyzer. I played with him once there. And I was so bad at it that I never wanted to play again. Like Probably two or three years later, in 2011, 2012, a buddy of mine wanted to play at Bosque Mountain. It's a ski resort. And we went and we rented discs. We rented DX Sharks. And we played 18. And for whatever reason, that time around, I was totally hooked. Bought like a couple of discs from Marshall Street, went to Jay Park. I was so bad in my head. I remember after like the first round at Jay Park being like, you cannot be this bad at something. And like, that's what compelled me to get good at disc golf. <laughs> All right. So the most recent what we think on Josh Wynn is 949. Ah. And that was in 2016. That was probably accurate. a little undervalued. I think so. <laughs> Team challenge is a mixed bag because my hands are extremely dry. And when it's humid out, I actually like it because I can finally grip the disc. In the middle of the winter, I have no grip at all. And I feel like it really affects my putt. And so like team challenge was always like a mixed bag as far as if it was really cold, getting the right grip and just feeling like tight and tense. And I don't know if you guys experience that playing team challenge too, where it's like you kind of just never know what you're going to get. Yeah, I think that's true. It, I, obviously, you don't know what you're going to get just in terms of conditions. They're massively variable. And especially when you get into the true winter months, but even starting in December, but December, January, February, March, you could play on a nice sunny 50 degree day with no cover on the ground 
or it could be negative 20 with the fucking wind chill and a foot of snow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, or icy. It's like ice is terrible. Yep. All that kind of stuff. I hear a lot of players all the time talk about how the disc goes further in warm air or summer air where they can't throw in the cold air. And I think it's, you know, you can't throw with 12 layers on. Yeah. You know, and a cold hand. I think that if you were in a 85 degree garage throwing out into negative 20 cold weather, that there would be perhaps a minor difference in, in the distance you could achieve, but it wouldn't be much. If you could throw in shorts all year long and comfortably. But yeah, winter golf, it's a clusterfuck. <laughs> Even this year with New York Team Challenge, I don't know, last year at the end of the season, I was like, this was fine. Like, I enjoyed myself for sure. And it was good to get out and do something. But I was like, oh, I could like kind of take this or leave this. And now it's like summertime and thinking ahead to like signing up. Just I know I would have major FOMO <laughs> if I didn't play. <laughs> I don't personally have options. <laughs> I don't feel like I could not play. I think it would drive me nuts to not be a part of it. It's become entrenched for me. I don't think I could sit around and let 25 other people go play Team Challenge and me sit at home. <laughs> I think proved definitively by following them around all winter long without even being able without to play. Playing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so tell me about your bag, Josh. What did you start throwing? What have you been throwing recently? I remember in the beginning... I was really into DX Valkyries. In fact, one time I was playing a tournament, like when I first started playing at Central Park, and I had this like totally beat up DX Valkyrie that I lost during the tournament. And I thought like my disc golf career was over because I relied so heavily. It was like the flippiest disc in the world. And then since then, you know, uh, I think Jason can attest to this. I try out like a lot of different things and I'm constantly tinkering with my bag, but I always go back to the staples, which... For me right now, is like classic AVRs. I always throw a, a pure, either opto or gold line, depending on just whichever one I have. I throw a Cenus, mm-hmm. which is like kind of an unknown disc. It's like a latitude overstable putter. Very underrated, in my opinion, as a throwing disc. Would you compare it to like an Envy, or is it less stable? I would say it's pretty close to an Envy. The profile is kind of similar to like a small drone, if that makes mm. sense. Sure. But it comes in baseline plastic. I like the soft ones. I'm always tinkering with mid-ranges, you know, even just as recently as this weekend, I put rocks back in my bag and I always go back and forth between rocks and like a comet and a wasp. If I break my flippy rock, then I go back to a comet because I just need something understable right away. And then drivers, I used to throw the turn a lot. I used to throw the boss a lot. Now I'm really into the um, Latitude 64 flow and the Latitude 64 arrive. Those are like complement each other extremely well. I don't think I've heard of either of those. I think I've heard of the ride, but definitely not the flow. Which one's like the stable and the understable one? So the flow is like kind of a like slightly understable 11 speed. Okay. The rive is like an overstable 13 speed. Nice. Big time fan of like the Saint, which is a Latitude 64 disc. New, it flies like a new Roadrunner and then beats into like similar to a Roadrunner. The rim is slightly smaller and like not as convex. So I just like the way it feels better than a Roadrunner. And then I throw a Felon and a Justice, but those are kind of just like utility discs. Interesting that most of your bag is like Latitude and like Trilogy. Is, yeah, is there like a vendor locally? Is, is there a reason that you got into all that stuff? Yeah, because my style of play is I'm like a Heiser Flip player. And I think the Glide is way better. The discs, in my opinion, break in way faster, which depending on who you are and how you throw, is it could be good or bad. Mm-hmm. And I really like the plastic a lot. And the mold consistency seems to be 
some of the most consistent. And I've tried all of Innova, not a ton of Discraft besides mids, because I feel like Discraft drivers are pretty odd. But I've dabbled in like all the disc companies and just, I don't know, a lot of 264. I like the plastic, like the molds and like the glide. Hmm, very cool. And earlier this season, I bought a pound custom Carlton. I don't know if you know what that bag is. It's kind of like a bag where it's split down the middle and you put all your discs like on the side vertically. I do. And it never made sense to me. It looks so awkward. <laughs> so t- tell me. <laughs> okay. So you like it. Okay. So I'm really good friends with Brett Delamater and he was like talking for a while, like he was going to get it. And I kind of had my eye on it too. When he was ready to buy, I was like, man, like I'm going to get one too. So I made a custom one and ordered it because I thought I would really like how you can like separate your putters from your mids, from your drivers and kind of just have each in their own compartment. It turns out that I actually hate that. (laughs) 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 I would get another pound bag the regular style because the comfort factor was amazing the build quality was very good a little concern that there wasn't luggage rails on the bottom because the bottom is kind of saggy like all pound bags kind of look like saggy and dumpy after they've been carried for a little while where like a grip is very rigid and kind of like boxy but anyway so my buddy harry lehman he's trying it out now and hopefully i can sell it to him (laughs) (laughs) otherwise i'm probably going to give it away as a prize for my league (laughs) have you seen the new bag that pound just came out with the rufus yeah i have oh yeah i ordered one oh cool i could not wait for that bag what colorway it's basically a red uh with tan accents on the top dipped in like a darker brown so it should age pretty well and not get totally dingy the other one i was looking at was kind of like a white camo top with tan at the bottom and i was just like that white is just gonna get Super nasty with time. Also, a lot of Grip's colors are just terrible, too. Like, awful. (laughs) Well, all of them were so bright and blingy and neon. I'm like, that's not what I want. Yeah, they're very harsh. (laughs) Yes, yes, for sure. The Rufus, it's supposed to be only like, I think, 14 to 16 disc capacity, but it still has lots of storage on the side. So it seems like it's going to be perfect. So let you know how that goes once it comes in. Will you use that for like your every round bag? I think so. I pretty much, unless I'm like doing a two day tournament, I use my C series grip, which is just like a hair or two too small. So I think the Rufus is going to be kind of like my new go to, but we'll see. So I had one of the old grip A series, like the second generation ones that I went back to. And like, even though the straps are worn out, I don't know, there's just something about it that I just, it feels, you know, like home and. I see all my discs. I have two putters in the um, valuables pocket and then like three in the main slot. And just, I don't know, for whatever reason, that just makes the most sense to me. Hmm. Josh, have you had a chance to talk about the league that you're running? No, not at all. Yeah. So what are you doing there? Before we get there, I just have a quick question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What exactly is a paint bureau? (laughs) (laughs) So paint bureau is the name of my business. I own and operate a finished carpentry and painting business. Awesome. Jack, go ahead. That makes a lot more sense. (laughs) Uh, Josh, you run the Paint Bureau Pro League. Can you tell us about it? (laughs) I can. I'll kind of start with like the genesis of why I started the league. I was actually sick home with COVID earlier this winter and obviously was going to have a lot more downtime than what I was used to. And I just was like really having a fever to play disc golf and to kind of paint the picture of kind of who I've been as a disc golfer for the last five, six, seven, eight years. It's 
you know, like a 955 no man's land where I run my own business. I'm married. I have two kids that are nine and five. I just don't really have a lot of time to commit to tournaments. And so every year I play maybe one, maybe three tournaments tops. And it always just seemed like by the time like a tournament came around, I just would psych myself out and kind of just, you know, throw one dud round and follow it up with like a decent round. I felt like I could never like reach my full potential. I feel like just, you know, like other aspects of golf, driving, putting, upshots, you know, playing events is a muscle that you need to work out and you need to exercise and you need to feel that pressure to get used to performing in it. And I felt like I'd never really had that chance. So I felt like a lot of times when I played events, I would just kind of like mentally stress myself out and play bad. And even getting together with my buddies like Jason, our other buddy, Harry Lehman, Brett Delamater, even getting together for casual rounds because we're all so busy just seemed like really hard last year to even do. And I thought like, well, what if I ran a league and I wanted the buy-in to be a lot, the buy-in's $20 to kind of just make it worth it for people who wanted to play and also get people like a decent payout. And I thought that even if I ran a league and only Brett, Harry and Jason showed up, like at least I would be able to play with my three best friends every week and we would have something like guaranteed. And so I kind of took the plunge, like researched what to do. It was so easy, registered the league and just kind of hit the ground running. So it's a PDGA sanctioned league. It is a PDGA sanctioned league. And locally in our club, there are no other PDGA sanctioned leagues, at least that I'm aware of. And so I felt like I was offering something different because I also feel a lot of disc golf is catered to amateur play, which it makes perfect sense why it would be because locally amateurs far outweigh pros. So it just makes sense that it would be that way. But I really wanted to create a space for players to show up every week, play for real cash and play the best players in the area and just kind of be able to test their skill on a weekly basis and have it count, have your rating represented like you're playing for real. I'm really glad that I did because I love running the league and it's been amazing so far. The people who show up are amazing. Jason can attest. There's no drama. I feel like I've been really lucky at the crowd that I've been able to pull. For reference, when did you start it? How long has it been running? So it was the first year of the league. It started in, I think, at the end of April and ran for 10 weeks. And it's been on a three or four week hiatus. It actually kicks off again this Wednesday for another 10 week stretch. Nice. Jason can kind of explain the points. So I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Jason for, first of all, letting me like bounce every idea I had to him. But he's really kind of masterminded the payouts, the points, because I think the point system is really cool and unique. And Jason, if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining the points and how they work. Before you do, in the trivia, he's scorekeeper. Yeah, I want to I mean, say, like, that's, that's, that's the value of this numbers. podcast oh, trivia yeah. doesn't work without the points mastery of Jason Lesneso. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so there's two custom things about the league. There's the payouts, which are extremely aggressive, and the points, which are also really aggressive. So the points work, basically, you get 10 points for just participating in a weeknight for every person you beat, you get a point. For every person that beats you, you lose a point. So basically, everybody in the bottom half is just walking away with 10 points. It's just the minimum you get for showing up. As you get higher, the people that are in you know, the podium finishes are going to have the most points. And when Josh and I did it, we ran through all these different scenarios and different spreadsheets of you know things that he was concerned about. He had a 10-week schedule. He was worried about mentioning names, but somebody coming in from Central New York and basically winning the whole league just shooting really hot one or two nights. So 
the points are a good balance of, all right, uh, it's best seven out of 10 weeks. So you go there and you show up and you're getting second all the time. You're going to do really well. If you go there and you get first a few times, but then you tank other times, you're going to do really well. But it definitely rewards the higher place finishes over uh, anybody that's in the bottom half. As far as the, the payouts, since it is a PGA sanctioned league, there are rules that you have to follow to pay out, I think, 40% of the pro field. So in order to have a really aggressive payout scale, the players that cash towards the bottom are leaving with like a dollar or like $5. And the person that's taking it down first is walking away with like half the pro purse. And so it's an exponential curve. I won't go into like the coefficients and the math behind it, but we played around with some different stuff and Josh and I worked together and we've kind of fine tuned it to what we thought was like the perfect aggressive payout of how to do like so that the top podium guys are getting the most money and everybody else is just walking home with like a buck. So for example, this is kind of, I'm just kind of like spitballing. These aren't the exact numbers because I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but actually give me one second. I can pull it up. Does he have the cool pin? Doesn't he know we're live people? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I, I'm leaning on this, um, this editing. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that the Paint Bureau Pro League is probably my favorite league that I've ever played in because it combines two things. It's the casualness of like a weekly league, like dubs or anything you go to, where you can have a couple beers, you socialize with your friends and play the local courses. You know, it's like all the good things about that. But on the other end, it's sanctioned. So you play by all the rules and it's very professional. People that are there are all playing for money. There's ratings on the line. So everybody's taking it seriously. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. And to me, it's the most fun and the most enjoyable league I've been a part of. And those type of leagues, you're allowed to drink, right? Yeah, as long as you're 21. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jason has like this, I don't know, massive graph of the payout. So for the league for 10 weeks, 14 players showed up on average throughout the 10 weeks, which blew my mind. I thought that if six, seven, eight people showed up, it was going to be a huge success to me. So the buy-in is $20. And so if 14 people show up, the winner wins $100, second place 55, third place 30, fourth place 15, fifth place 10, and sixth place one. Basically what I wanted was if someone's going to come out and win the league and there's 14 other players trying to win, I wanted to make sure that they got compensated properly and like as much as possible. Yeah, that's awesome. That's the way it should be. And you get a, what do you call them, pins or badges? So yeah, this um yeah, that link I just put up in there. Oh, is there oh cool. I, I just put it in the chat. Oh nice. Yeah, those are gorgeous. It's cool that you know Kenji and like are posting that. Thank you. Just because I don't play in it because I'm not skilled enough doesn't mean I don't follow. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was a kid, the initial surge of Pokemon was like a bit this is gonna probably annoy some people, but I don't care. <laughs> I'll interrupt you with the one thing that I know about Pokemon and I only know it because my friend Aaron Frank related to me. And that's that Pokemon is for babies. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to also go on record and say that I listen to the podcast all the time and like big Jack Bradley fan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Pokemon. (laughs) Exactly. So in Pokemon, you play the game and you're a Pokemon trainer and you travel from town to town. And if you beat the gym leader in that town, you get a badge. And then once you get like a certain amount of badges, you can become like a professional Pokemon trainer. So my thought was, and my son now who is nine is very into Pokemon. So it's just like still very present in my life. 
basically I created badges, one for every course played, and the winner who wins each course gets a badge that's specific to that course that comes in a ring case. And they can either keep it in that as like a trophy or pin it on their bag. I just think it's been like really cool bag swag if you have those to display. Jason, are you the one who puts them on your gusset? Yeah. A grip bag has like a zippered gusset to expand the bag and Jason puts his there. So when he unzips it, it displays the pin. <laughs> and uh, it's just really cool. That is dope as fuck. Yeah, those are fantastic. I love the simplicity of the badges, how you came up with the different ideas. Well, yeah. Explain those. Like, what are the different symbols and how do they represent each course? So I designed all the badges with exception of taking the art from Stony Kill, which I'll tell you which one that is in a second. That's actually original art from Brett Delamater, who was on the show. So basically, I thought of each course and I was like, what is a feature of this course that's unique and that I can kind of put like a simplified version of it onto like a pin because the pins are only one inch. They're not very big. And so going from left to right, the rock is J Park. Obviously, J Park has yeah. beautiful rock outcroppings everywhere. Um, the second one is a course logo that Brett made years ago for Stony Kill that never ended up being used. The first nine holes play through pine trees is Stony Kill. So that's like a really cool one. The third one is kind of an abstract rose. Central Park in Schenectady, probably most well known for how they keep up their rose garden in the park. The power tower, Stephen P. Wallace, you play like under and around the power towers on one or two of the holes. And then the last rock is the J Park rock with a compass pointing north. Oh, clever. That's just for the J North layout, which is the hardest layout by far. I kind of wanted to separate that pin and make it kind of the most like prestigious and hard to get because we do play multiple layouts at J Park. So I wanted the J North pin to kind of stand out and have some shine to it. That's so cool. That's really cool. Yep. And have you given these out yet? Is it just whoever has the current, I guess, most points at that course gets to keep it? No. So whoever wins the individual league night at that course gets that specific course pin. So I've only given out 10 pins. Oh. They're hard to come by. And I think it's just really cool and fun. One thing about disc golf is I feel like so many people just kind of regurgitate the same stuff. I wanted to make this league unique and make it like a fun little twist. So what you're saying is you got to catch them all. Exactly. (laughs) We're all thinking it. (laughs) Thank you. Has anybody gotten multiple? Jason, you got multiple. No, I just got one. Oh, you just got the J North? My mistake. Okay. Just the J North. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My least favorite layout, too. Yeah, you were trash talking it so much. And I'm like, then you come out and win it. (laughs) How have the ratings been compared to what you would see in a tournament round? So. I'll speak to this, and then I'm sure Jason has his own opinions, which are probably backed up by facts. I think the ratings have been surprisingly fair. I can't say exactly why, because the propagator's spread has been everyone from Brett, who is 992, I believe, down to, you know, we got some people showing up that are in like the 800s. But I think they've been either fair or on one or two occasions, slightly generous. What would you say, Jason? Yeah, I think the first few were generous. I didn't play in those, but just looking at them. But the other ones are all pretty close to, you know, with a PGA tournament. Wait, see the tournament. Yeah. You know, you factor into like the weather and the conditions and stuff. It's pretty close. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's rare in a league. Right. That's what I always hear that about leagues. I've never played them on. I've just heard that the ratings can be kind of bonkers. Oh, I've looked at some league numbers over the course of the last year and insane number. Guys who are 
you know, never better than 960 with a thousand rated round. Is it possible that a 960 guy shoots a thousand rated round? Sure. But the variation from what those same players are shooting in tournaments ratings wise uh, seems wild for league. Leagues do not attract, you know, talent from far away. So you get a lot of players who maybe play all their rounds on the course that the league is on in the case, which is usually the case where the league is only on one course. My theory is the, I don't want to say either, I guess the higher rated pro players that the league's attracting probably have a tighter standard deviation than a full field of AMs and pros. Yeah. So it's probably more consistent. So that's why it's closer to like what a field of 72 would represent, even though the sample size is much smaller. Right, right, right. The one exception was Prospect Park. He kind of did that one impromptu. That course is like a birdie or die where an 850 rated person can shoot. I don't remember what the actual scores are, but somebody could light it up that doesn't throw very far, isn't very accurate. Yeah. And a pro can get destroyed because they just missed the tree kicks and whatnot. And the ratings were like a little crazy there, but that was only Beacon. Yeah, right. Beacon, I like to say that's where Dave Kimmelman can beat Brinster. (laughs) 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 Prospect was first PGA rated round there was the pro league. So there wasn't anything to compare it to, but the ratings did seem kind of like all over the place there. We can go into multiple time winners. There's actually like some pretty interesting stats. So Tyler Calzada won twice. Jason won once. I won once. Honorable mention. (laughs) Yeah. I actually shot my highest rated round ever, which was a 1036. And that was just mind blowing. It was in the rain and it was wet. And I don't know how I did it. I was going to congratulate you on your first thousand rated round at Minekill. But it seems like you've won up that since. <laughs> it was actually my second, and I shot 2,000 rated rounds in the same week. Wow. And I have to say, for anyone who's listening, I just feel like 1,000 rated, especially, at least for someone who's like my skill level, is just, it's always eluded me. And uh, it's just one of those things where once you do it, you like believe that it's possible. And I feel like it opens up a door that was never opened before, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened to me at 900. it's a whole new world (laughs) Corey cook uh, honorable mention one two back to back currently rated 940 so i actually was on his card one night that he won and played so consistent made every putt even when he was like out of position trying to save par it was like a really great round and he's like one of the league diehards i didn't really know him that well before i ran the league which like another side benefit of the league is i've got to know like so many great people Corey being one of them and he's just such like a fun character i just love that he's like part of the disc golf scene and i'm like so happy that i know him like really well now some other accolades i'll throw at josh's league he gave uh some prizes out for attendance they're called yeti ramblers they're basically like a yeti koozie for tall boys and uh you did season payouts so like the season points there was a podium payout yeah so that's you're packing a ton of value into this thing Besides, yeah, what does it cost to show up? Like $40? (laughs) I can actually go through that. The cost to show up the league is $20. And I think to a lot of people that seems high, but the average tournament is what, like 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 bucks, sometimes for two rounds. So I feel like it's cheaper than a tournament. And so $15 of that 20 would go towards the nightly payout, $1 would go to. Uh, split between Discap, the club, and the PDGA. 
And then the other four went to the end of season payout. And the end of season payout for highest points, first place got 300 extra cash, second place 200 extra cash, and third place 100 extra cash. Damn. Is that in 10-week sprints you award that out, or is it still accumulating? Basically, when I started the league, I kind of just made up some numbers and went with them. Full disclosure, if I had to put a number on what the league cost me to run, just for stuff that I bought for the league, it was a little over 500 and whatever extra I had to put into the payout. I was like, 300, 200, and 100 seems like it will make people want to commit. Because I was worried people would show up once and not come back. And I wanted to create like enough draw for someone to you know, keep playing to try to get, you know, that prize at the end. So I kind of made up those numbers and I haven't announced the numbers yet this year for this next 10 week season, which starts this Wednesday for a multitude of reasons, because there's a couple of things that are kind of up in the air at the bare minimum. They'll be the same, if not more. We, I actually just released a fundraiser long sleeve for 25 bucks, which is a paint bureau pro league long sleeve that people are buying and all the proceeds will go towards like running the league and the end of season payout. Sweet. I didn't do any fundraising on the front end of last time. I've sponsored um, Jason's tournaments like sometime before and done like other little things with disc golf. And I literally have zero ROI on sponsoring disc golf. (laughs) (laughs) Not to say other companies don't, but for me particularly, there hasn't been, it hasn't, you know, I haven't still waiting for that client. Yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> Looking at your work. I like Pharaoh and ball paints. Are you kidding? <laughs> no disc golfers have reached out to you for a paint job. I did a little work at Jason's house. I've done work for Harry, but not, not exclusively to like me marketing within disc golf. Right. And yeah, there's been other people who have reached out to me for work. Luckily where I live, which is like um, Northern Columbia County. It's just like a honeypot of people, second homes from the city. So Thankfully, I'm never looking for work, but for someone in my line of work, advertising in disc golf is like, you know, it's not a great venture. Yeah, I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you a little secret right now. This is for all of you entrepreneurs out there as well. Uh, Advertising in disc golf does not pay any dividends at all, ever. (laughs) I think about that every time I'm watching Disc Golf Network and there's some like flower pot, like planting something company. I don't even know what it is. And I'm like, no one's buying this. Like, how much did you guys pay for this? That is an avid disc golfer right there. Like yourself. Yep. (laughs) That owns that company that's been talked into something that had a little extra in the till and uh, felt like making a commercial. To go back to some stats about the league. Uh, Harrison Lehman won the league three times, which if you live in this area, that's no surprise. Harry just through and through is just a gamer and any given course, any given time, if he shows up, he's going to be really hard to beat, especially at the local courses. He knows him like the back of his hand. And yeah, the guy's a gamer. Like he won three times. He won uh, the most times of anyone who is a multi-time winner at the league, which if you won three out of 10, I think that's something to be really proud of. I have found him to be a complete and total pain in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) for what matchups yeah yeah you know when he gets played yeah Ah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah my bad (laughs) the league had a great finish this year too it was like kind of a coincidence but the last match was at jay park and there was like a farmer's market or something but there was live music there was like a 90s alternative cover band that played so many songs just brought back the 90s but cotton candy food vendors and then Josh was like cooking 
stuff on the grill. You had like sausages and hot dogs. Yeah, throwing net. It was really cool. It was awesome. That sounds like a great vibe. This is a thing whose time has come. You're catering to top players. There's a place where top players and everybody else don't belong playing in the same competition. There are other parts of the country that are a lot more mature than ours, disc golf-wise. I know San Diego Aces, they run five or six doubles leagues weekly. But one of them is an invitation-only doubles league, and you have to be 940-plus to go. And a league like that excludes me. But I still absolutely love to see it. I think that the need is there for it. It's the right place for top players to compete. And it's the right place for idiots like me to donate. You know? (laughs) Those are all really amazing points, and I completely agree. And locally here in Discap, I don't know how many players are rated above 950, but you could probably count them maybe on one hand, maybe like an extra finger or two. And really, my goal was just to get those guys together and like battle every week and just, you know, kind of like test your metal and like really play for something, which has been awesome. Amateurs can, anyone can show up to play, it's one division. I get asked this question a lot. Why don't you have a women's division? And my answer is always the same. A women's league needs to be its own thing, period, end of story. A women's league needs to be inviting towards women. It needs to be women only so new women feel comfortable coming. And that's just not... That's not what you're running. Exactly. That's not what I'm running. However, uh, Jason's wife, Jess, did show up for two different leagues. And this kind of speaks to my next point. It's really hard to get rated rounds in our area if you're not playing tournaments, it's like obviously impossible besides this league, but it gives AMs a chance to show up. They're going to donate, so they're not going to win anything, but they also get a rated round out of it. Yep. Not only that, depending on what card you get on, you can be the worst player there and play with the best player. And I think there's a big value in that for up and coming players. I agree with you 100%. I've always said that doubles is disc golf's best learning slash teaching tool. I get my fucking balls in a knit when people start bitching about you know how doubles gets handicapped how that entry level player doesn't have a chance to win for my money that entry level players entry fee is a donation and they get to learn something and they get to learn something they're probably on a card with three players all of whom can teach them something and will too and will and will yeah (laughs) because they're disc golfers and nine out of ten will teach you something yep The hysterical thing about disc golfers is, and it took me a while to learn this, but there's very few of them who don't have something to teach you. So uh, I think you can look at another player and say, you know, I'm better than that guy and they have nothing to teach me. But I learned a while ago that that's absolutely not true. I I find there's almost no disc golfer that doesn't have something to teach you. But I agree with you 100%, Josh, that the donator gets a lot of value from being on that card. To begin with, it gets to see what's possible. Probably going to get a tip out of it. What about the lower level player wins? They can't take cash though, right? Leagues don't matter for cash. It's really interesting because if there's one thing this league taught me, it's the locals who are trying to protect their rating, which is hilarious to me because none of you guys are sponsored. So what are you protecting? Like to me, that's like the most baffling thing in the whole world. They've bought into something that's ridiculous. Yeah. Full disclosure. (laughs) Brett, I'm really sorry to bring this up on this podcast, but your rating is going to tank from how poorly you played in league. (laughs) (laughs) I think he might have even said that he has some, was that him who said he's got some league coming up? I think you're right. I think he had some. You didn't get anybody at DNF to protect their rating. No, definitely not. 
If I suspected that to be the case, I'm just really not interested in any like funny business. That would really irritate me if someone did that. I'm constantly telling Team Wedge to go out and tank some rounds. (laughs) (laughs) I I want those ratings low. (laughs) The one interesting thing I will say about a league versus a tournament is a lot of people can't wrap their head around averaging two rounds together versus just having played one round one week and one round the next week and they'll still average together to be whatever but i think a lot of players ams especially show up to a tournament and i'm famous for this the first round you're so nervous that you kind of like shoot yourself out of the tournament and shoot a low rated round below your rating but then you have the redemption of the second round because you're warmed up you've gotten all the stress out of your system and now you can just play right and nothing to lose and league is different where it's like you have to show up and play right now yep that's like a different animal. Yep, yep, yep. The lowest rated player we had attend league was 844. Uh, the highest rated player we had attend was 994. Was either of those Jason? No. <laughs> <laughs> the average number of players throughout the 10 weeks, like I mentioned, was 14. There was 29 unique players who played the league, which I thought was an amazing success for first time running a league. And the total prize money given out was $2,740. Good Lord. So you've posted the schedule for season two now, right? I did post the schedule for season two, and it's a little different than season one. I really wanted to use Stony Kill as a course because it's centrally located to Albany, and it's like a good course for the league to play at. Plus it's close to your house. Yeah, and <laughs> I literally work almost directly across the street. I've been on like a really big project for well over a year, and it's still ongoing. So that you know, obviously was very convenient also. So yeah, the new schedule came out, so we're keeping it to three courses this time, just Stephen P. Wallace, J. Park, Central Park, and Schenectady, and I'm doing something a little different this time, where last time the 10-week round point series, the winners after the 10th week when the point series got paid out, but this year I'm going to do top four highest in points are going to play an additional week at a J. Park safari layout that I'm going to make. <laughs> and use temporary baskets. And I'm hoping that a bunch of the regulars who don't make it in come out and drink with us. It's going to be a fun time. I'm really looking forward to that. Assuming I'm not going to be in it, because if I'm in it, that's going to really throw a wrench in the gears. Yeah, and it's going to look bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's rigged. I have uh, two questions. One, one, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, and that is, what is your go-to course beverage? Okay, so this is actually a really funny question, and I knew it was going to come up. Good. They're trained. we have them now (laughs) so really funny if there's something you should know about me where it's like if i'm put on the spot sometimes i just like blank out so i have a list don't panic thankfully there's no videos you guys can't see my notes (laughs) he's right up your alley ryan with all your notes yeah (laughs) so next page is his Three disc vacation bag, yeah, and yeah. Then the page <laughs> after that is his five disc vacation bag. I was going to use that joke. Thanks a lot. <laughs> we already went over his bag. We don't have to belabor the bag. I'm here for me. Actually, my wife had a trip to Memphis not too long ago, and she was bringing some discs down to give to her friends and such. Just two discs. She got x-rayed. So, oh, really? I don't know. It's weird. Five, no problem. Two discs. I go to Florida every winter. My in-laws, they winter down there and always bring my disc golf bag. Until like two years ago, every single time I got flagged. 
But in the last two years, it's been like kind of hit or miss, mostly missed about them going through my disc golf bag, which I think is like pretty interesting. I'm not sure why the change. Pretty much Jason knows this. Not so much recently because I just feel like we don't even get together to play casually. But there was a while where I would be showing up with a bomber of Evil Twin Imperial Biscotti Break, Evil Twin Molotov Cocktail. (laughs) I forget what year it was, but first tracks at J Park tied the course record because I got bombed on Biscotti Break and just was throwing in from everywhere. And I just I'm the kind of person where if I get the right amount of alcohol in me, I feel like I'm lethal. But obviously, like everything else, it's like a fine balance. It's the Balmer curve. Yeah, exactly. If I had to pick one beer I would love to bring to the course every time, it would definitely be uh, Fiddlehead Mastermind. It's one of my all-time favorite beers. But otherwise, like any hoppy pills, uh, locally, there's Common Roots Brewery. Like Everything they make is super quality. I've kind of been in a weird beer phase because all the local beer places have just expired beer which has like really turned me off to like buying beer. I know. It's your 10th pick. You don't even want it, but it's the only thing not expired. And like, it's very frustrating. I hear you. So for those of you that don't know, Imperial Biscotti Break is like a 12% Imperial Stout. <laughs> so that's oh, yeah. just like, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't imagine sucking one of those guys down in like July, but I can imagine for spring rounds and especially for Team Challenge, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Grab the second one after hole nine, you're going to be looking great. <laughs> yeah. On the back. But which one's Mastermind? Is it an IPA from Fiddlehead? It's a double. It's You've never had Mastermind? I've had second fiddle and I've had a lot of their more sessiony stuff, but I've never had Mastermind. Uh, Mastermind's delicious. It drinks like a 5% beer, but I think it's like high eight for alcohol content. Solid. It's delicious. I'll have to track that down. That sounds great. That would be my go-to beer. Like, just kind of like takes the edge off. And like I said, I have a lot on my plate. So when I'm disc golfing, it's like really time to unwind. And just the alcohol just helps me get in that space. <laughs> Amen. I still remember that round at J Park. We had a bet. It was old hole 17. I think it was like you, myself, and maybe Harry or somebody else that whoever uh, got the worst score on old hole 17 had to finish the Imperial Biscotti. <laughs> By the end of hole 18. Was it? Yeah, by that was end of the next by hole. the end of the next hole, and yeah, I think I bogeyed or double bogeyed it, and I just remember like being halfway down the hole eighteen, like ah, oh, this is nice. Yeah, here goes my <laughs> round, and then you like just proceeded to birdie like so many holes after that, like hitting fifty foot putts, and it was a, a great round for you. That's awesome. And my my second question is, um, uh, if you were going to put up some nice wainscoting in my office, what would you use <laughs> for a uh, and ball? <laughs> Paint color. <laughs> wow. Here's a pro insider tip. Ferrum ball colors are timeless and amazing. Ferrum ball paint is ridiculously overpriced and not that great. Ah, okay. Are you a Benjamin Moore guy? I am a Benjamin Moore guy. Almost through and through, I dabble in other stuff as well. So the pro tip is to go to your local Benjamin Moore retailer and get whatever product would be best suited for your project and just get it tinted to the ferrum ball color. Got it. Okay. Clever. Did you want to talk about the club and course stewardship programs? Yeah, this is like something that I've kind of thought a lot about. And I think it's like a problem. I I was telling people I was going to be on the show. And like, thankfully for me, a lot of the show has a slight discat bend to it. And blame Kenji. My fault. (laughs) But here's the thing about that is the reason why it has a slight discat bend is because even though all the locals are really used to everything that's going on, 
Disc Cap is amazing for disc golf. So many people have maybe two courses to play. And around here, there's so many courses to play. And it's kind of like an embarrassment of riches locally. But I think with that comes a problem of maintaining courses. And I think Jack can speak to this. Like, you know, I think FDR is in terrible shape right now, as I saw on Facebook over the weekend. And it's like, <laughs> Uh, so you, you can't get in. You can't even get in the door because of the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> it's closed. But that being said, it's always the same people doing the work. And and rightfully so. You know, if you're someone like a Kevin Rounds at J-Park, that guy like blazed the course. And, you know, he kind of has a right to, in my opinion, somewhat dictate what goes on there to a degree. But usually it's people who have a heavy hand in implementing the course who are then responsible which seems like in perpetuity maintain the course, which is a big problem. People get burnt out and it's always the same people doing all the work. And one solution I kind of came up with that I thought could work and I'll just come out and say it like I'm extremely busy. I don't have time to be like active in our club, but I think if clubs implemented some kind of course stewardship program where for one year, someone could either elect themselves or be elected to a position that was just for course maintenance. And we have a lot of like Innova ambassadors and other sponsored people hire someone for a year, give them ownership of a course, allow someone to step up and kind of take the reins and then hit them off with like some swag, some online appreciation, like give them something for their one year stewardship to kind of like help maintain a course. I feel like because everything is always dictated by such a small number of people that it inhibits people wanting to like kind of step up and give their time. I understand it's really hard because look, I've never made a disc golf course, but if I did, I would feel very protective over it and I would think it was my baby and I totally get that. But there's so much new blood in the sport and like we need to get these people putting some gloves on, like taking on some responsibility And if being a course steward in the club's eyes was something that was like prestigious, like people would want to do it, especially if it had a limited term of one year where you could say, you know what, like I've put my time in for this one year. I'm good. I did my part. And then someone else can fill that role next year. Right. You're looking to actually empower more people rather than beg people to come work for whoever is empowered. Correct actually get somebody to you know adopt the course for a year feel empowered and engage from there that's interesting i think the challenge with that is just and it's a great idea it's just like how far can they go are you empowering them to make course adjustments or just uh, <laughs> like weed whack <laughs> it's just general maintenance but everybody knows locally where it's like, hey, if you wanted to change an aspect of a course, like you would know who to talk to because obviously no one would do that on their own. But like your general trimming, mowing, weed whacking. I think it's different at different courses too. The shining beacon that we have, I think in the Hudson Valley, as long as we're incorporating it, is Warwick, where the town park has completely adopted maintenance of the fairways. They're taking their tractors into the woods. If there's a hole that has turf in the woods, they're taking a tractor into the woods and mowing there. They're weed whacking greens. It's not that the club doesn't need to supplement it, but that's a massive adoption of a course by the municipal entity. You know, I can't speak to the courses in Discap land, but I can speak extensively about FDR and Mount Kisco. FDR, what we get from the park in terms of mowing is sort of the major grass areas 
mostly when we beg them to do it. Sometimes they get out there and do it themselves, but their mandate is basically to mow the grass that the most people can see. So you'll see them spending all day mowing the grass on the other side of the park road from all of the fairways. (laughs) And, you know, they look pristine and great. And there's nothing there. There's no basketball, baseball, hiking, disc golf, nothing. And those are some of the best looking areas at FDR. They do support us. They'll move materials for us as we're doing T-pad builds. If we go and we say, you know, the back nine's really hairy and can you get out there with the tractors? Generally, they're responsive. The problem that we have is sort of small ball, which is to say the greens, mostly in the back, because in the front at FDR, the canopy prohibits a lot of growth on most of the greens. There's a couple of exceptions. But the club has taken on its own. I say the club, I mean, it used to just be Bill and, you know, then it was, you know, Bill and me and some other guys, AJ. And it's, you know, come to be more and more guys. In Wedge's case, we're doing quite well. Josh is referring to an oddball post. Someone <laughs> came and I guess had a bad experience on 10 yellows green, which was like one of two greens that suck on the course right now. It doesn't even suck that bad. The rest of the course, it's as playable as it's been in 15 years. The course is horrible. It's in terrible condition. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They didn't play hole 10 yellow five or six years ago. No, no. (laughs) Because before that, it was an impenetrable forest that I fucking cleared to put a basket there for the second layout. They didn't note that there was a second layout at FDR or eight brand new tees on its way to a total of 18. But, uh, you know, pick and choose. Pick and choose. (laughs) (laughs) There was a... You've opened the door for me, Josh. There was a little bit of sentiment about this post that somehow it was good. You know, this had like brought attention to a problem. First of all, it's a problem that was already being dealt with. You know, a month ago, a bunch of us, including Adam Gutman, realized that there was a need to get summer maintenance going. And yeah, two weeks ago, we did and got almost all of the trouble spots, except for two. Obviously, all year long, we've been building tees. But what I think that this post actually did was it irritated that handful of regular guys who, who, you know, have been out there every year for a decade, making the course better, more playable, have more tees, have more baskets. I don't see, maybe we're yet to see, and maybe you're part of it, Josh. Maybe the post is sparking a worthwhile conversation that will generate some new good ideas to get better maintenance on the course. I'm not going to sit here and tell you like FDR doesn't get shaggy in the summer. It absolutely does. And it needs constant policing and attention from people who care about it to keep it playable in the summer. And every place does. And everyone remembers when they first started playing disc golf and how gung-ho they were about disc golf and showed up to work days and did every club thing. And it's like, we need to kind of lasso those people in and give them, you know, like an opportunity to step up for the club and to like, have like a little prestige about what they're trying yeah. to do and empower people. Look, anyone can weed whack. Anyone can trim brush. Anyone can have a desire to build tee pads. If they don't know how they can be shown one and then try one more with critique. And then they're off to the races. And it's like people, I, in my opinion, really would like to help. And there's a lot of young people who are new to the sport, who have a good job, who have tons of free time that I think if you swagged them out and gave it a little prestige yeah. and, Threw them a little party just for them and like... I had to beg for help. I just feel like there's a solution to this problem. Literally had to beg to get people to help. But I feel like Josh is onto something and we come up with 
small ideas that we don't really implement. So one thing that Wedge is doing is Chris Jordan, who's a board member this year, is tracking volunteer hours. And he's doing something to the effect of throwing a raffle ticket into a pot for every hour that each volunteer puts in for a whole mess of swag to be awarded at the end of the year. I think that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. Wedge has funny money that we call Wedge Bucks. I think volunteers could come out and earn funny money for their time. And then Wedge keeps a store full of swag, discs, other gear that they could redeem it for. I'd like to see shirts made up with a cool stamp on them, Wedge logo, etc., with a big volunteer across the back of the thing, dry fits or something, so that when volunteers show up for a work day, we nail them with this shirt. I think that could be uh, a strong incentive. And if you give someone a sweatshirt that says crew on it or whatever, like people will do thousands of dollars worth of work for one sweatshirt. That's right. That's exactly right. The other thing which I've been a proponent of for a long time, these ideas are out there. So it's not it's not that they're not there. Implementing some of these things takes some management and hours behind the computer screen to get them off the ground and organization. I feel like David Merle brought this up. I've been kicking this around for a long time. I think we'd benefit from volunteers being able to plan their volunteerism. So if we made it so that the first Saturday of every month was going to be a volunteer day, then you would know you'd be like, oh, I'm going to knock my hours out in you know May, June and July and the rest of the year I'm going to coast. But you know those three Saturdays, I'm going to be there. If you knew that there was going to be a volunteer day and a round on the first Saturday of each month, first Sunday, whatever it's going to be. I think that could go a long way versus what we do now, which is, hey, I need some helpers here, you know, in two days to help move this to there and cut this. That's what I do, basically, because I'm completely disorganized. And I get close to when I actually want to do the project. And that's when I throw up my post saying, hey, guys, can you come out and help? I think there are administrative things. That is definitely what you're talking about. Things I think we could build volunteer programs intelligently with purpose and then deploy them rather than, you know, just have an idea this week and be like, yeah, we're going to print a bunch of shirts and it should be a strategy. I think courses are going to need a legit volunteer strategy if if they want a workforce of regular volunteers. Mm. I keep belaboring this, but like I said, I'm not involved in my local club whatsoever. So, you know, who am I to say like what should or shouldn't happen? But it really just comes from a place of like, I always see the same people doing all the work and I'm so grateful to them, but I just also feel like we could empower new players to make a move. And whether that's, you know, having a position in the club board, that's just volunteer based. And then one person can kind of pull all the strings. I just think that there's a really untapped resource of new players who would be eager to help. A lot of people want to hold on to the responsibility because they're afraid to give it away. But the second you give it away, people love to take it and run with it. And like, I think the same would be true in disc golf. Look, building a T-pad, I think that there's definitely some skill and a lot of things to consider. But I also just feel like if you showed one competent person how to do one once, they could build a commensurate T-pad the second time. It's nothing crazy. It's not rocket science. No. No, it's just attention to detail. The little things matter. A little bit of patience. Yeah, till half-assed it. Bought a little string trimmer, <gasps> brush hog. Shut it, Jackie. <laughs> no, that was my dog, Winnie. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> Wait, is your your dog's name is Winnie? Winnie, Win? Winnie, Win, Winnie the Pooch. Oh, I like that. <laughs> 
That's great. She's like a six-month-old yellow lab. Oh, adorable. Course dog or poorly behaved. There's something outside that she's barking at, so really well behaved. <laughs> so just generally, like, how are the discap courses this summer? Are they being maintained? Are they shaggy? They have trouble spots? Can't you close your ears? The ones that I've played have been very good. Jay Park is its own animal because once it greens in in the woods, it needs a lot of traffic to knock it down. But uh, there's a big push for the jammer to kind of tidy things up, which helped amazingly. Usually when there's a tournament, obviously there's a push to get the course playable, which is good. Stony Kill always looks great. Shout out to the Stony Killers, Gene and crew. Like Those guys work so hard to keep that place almost perfect but they're also just like a really tight crew of guys who seemingly just keep going and going but yeah i would say the courses generally are great mind kill was great but i think that's also centered around the tournament definitely you want to play mind kill do it in june that's time here because it's all uh, manicured for the tournament tournament schedule tends to give us the freshest work crews out yeah 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 uh, all right. Uh, so we'll see you guys next week. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Pat. Cool. See ya. Thanks, Thank you, Pat. See ya. Josh was talking about how we don't have video. When I first started using this, it didn't have video. There wasn't even an option for it. And... Hauser and Todd were on, and it was the first time for video. And I was like, I don't care, whatever. And just to watch people, because he was talking about reacting off of people's faces, and I'm kind of the same way. I I was watching like uh, just bored faces on the screen, and I'm like, yeah, no, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna have the video <laughs> portion of because it, it's just it's just too distracting. I can see the benefits to what you're saying, but yeah, no, I hear you. You know, it's funny is. For my job, because it's in the IT department, we're all scattered all over the world. We do tons of video conferencing. And I did the, this whole session on, it was supposed to be meeting best practices because everybody's complaining that they don't have enough time. So we said, okay, let's do a whole series on like meeting best practices to make sure that we're not, you know, wasting everybody's time when we're meeting. So made a whole bunch of content for that. But then I was like, how do I make this actually fun? Have you heard about Zoom fatigue? No. No, what's wrong with you? The fact that people are feeling very burnt out from excessive video conferencing and how it's like stifling their creative process. And so there was like this whole research paper written by somebody at Stanford, I think, that kind of outlined four different reasons people are getting burnt out by it. One of the funny things, it's kind of like you have a mirror on you all the time that like it causes like unnecessary self-reflection. Because <laughs> you see your own face, right? And, and thinking like, okay, is that how I actually look? Is that how I talk? Am I really that dumb? <laughs> and that can like stifle creative thought. But one of the other things that they found that was pretty funny is, especially if you're in like a one-to-one call with somebody, their face, the size of their face is like huge, right? It's like life-size if you're staring at a monitor. That amount of intimacy, like that closeness to share like a gaze at a foot away from each other is reserved for like only your intimate family members. Yeah, it's so weird on the computer. It really is. It's so uncomfortable. And also, there's nowhere else to gaze. If you're in a meeting in person, everybody's like taking notes, staring off into space. But it's kind of rude to do that in a video conference because everybody's supposed to look attentive and focused. And so if you're the one guy like staring at his phone or whatever, it 
comes across as rude, but in reality, in person, you know, everybody's doing it. It, it was really, really fascinating. So I don't know if video would enhance this or hinder it. I like the animation better. <laughs> I need somebody who can draw caricatures. I can do the voiceover stuff. I guess if there was video and we had to be like sitting in the silence, it would feel so weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right now I'm just picking out HelloFresh. That's really yeah. <laughs> I was just actually looking in my list of questions. Kenji, have you had your disc go through the basket since it's become legal for it to do so? No, I have not had a wedgie yet, Count. Okay. <laughs> so wedgies count now even on the outside of the basket, right? Even if you watch it stick right in the side. Uh, okay, this is a topic actually I wanted to bring up and it's like, I don't know where you guys stand, but especially the last two years with all of like the stance rulings change and some of the OBs and this wedgie thing, and there's like a couple other things you know, it just really seems like the PDJ is being very heavy handed and acting very quickly to change rules. I don't know if it's because I've been playing long enough now that I have the mindset of, oh, well, the rules I'm used to are the best rules or something like that. But it just seems like rules are kind of coming in fast and furious and aren't like that well thought out. They have this whole yeah. rules committee that vets everything. And I think we just hear about it and then maybe some interpretation, like that whole run up rule thing is bullshit. Um, you should be able to Agreed. kick the out of your way. <laughs> Did they officially comment on the whole lay down? I can take a stance like this. I can kick anything within like an eight foot radius. Did they ever comment on that? Because that to me is a good compromise. They haven't revised the rule at all. No, it was just somebody said something at, what tournament was it? The players meeting. Yeah, I think Casey White actually demonstrated it. Right. They said something (laughs) that they couldn't kick stuff out, and then Casey actually laid down and said, this is a legal stance. I can lay down with my arms outstretched. So that means I can move anything within this area. Right. I don't know if they ever clarified that. I don't know if they actually addressed it. But to your question, Josh, I think they do have like a public comment period, you know, where like the rules are published and they want feedback on them. I think the reality is that you can do that and do a vetting process, but sometimes unintended consequences kind of come through once they're in play. So I I think that that's kind of part of it. But the weird thing is sometimes the PDGA doubles down on them, like the stance rule or clearing obstacle rule. I think the other thing is that because there's so much more pressure for the pro tour and i think because there's so much more coverage and publicity and scrutiny that maybe they're kind of being forced to be more rapid about rule changes because they think it'll help things and clear things up in competition where it's getting more scrutinized but it does seem like the changes are more vast than they were previously like rule changes previously seem to be relatively minor i feel like in the last 2 years there's been more substantial rule changes than in the past 10 Hmm. It's interesting. What's happened in the past? Well, Well, it started with the paper, and it's really hard not to sound like grumpy about this stuff, but (laughs) I don't understand why the line of play is like such a complicated thing, because if you put a sheet of paper behind your lie, sure, that's fine if you have a disc, but as soon as you mark with a mini, it starts to look like ridiculous and illegal and very hard to judge and tell. And I thought the line was much better. In my head, it just, it doesn't make sense, like, in any capacity to me. Yeah. 
it's definitely true, especially when you mark a mini and you're trying to figure out like, well, where's the basket in relation to the person's mini, especially if there's a lot of obstacles in the way. And they're like, you know, a foot in the wrong direction off of their mini. And it's just like, oh, well, that doesn't look good. But, you know, I couldn't question it. (laughs) It almost seems like for that to work, do you have a disc that you just keep in your bag that's like specifically a disc to mark your other disc? Then you could actually see it. But even that just seems so complicated where the line of play just seems so straightforward. Right. The whole disc is illegal because minis can't be bigger than, what, three inches, four inches? You can't use a full disc. Right, which makes sense. But I feel like even marking the lie requires you to know what the line of play is to begin with. Yeah, I thought the line of play was a lot cleaner. But even with the new rule, to mark your lie to put a mini down, you have to mark it on the line of play. So it's like you still are relying on the line of play, but then all of a sudden when you're taking your stance, the line of play is irrelevant. It's like, it's very weird. Is the line of play irrelevant when you take your stance though? Because like, isn't the middle of the back of the paper on the line of play? My point was the that is- if you're setting your mini and you're using the line of play to establish where your mini goes, why then uh-huh. change the footing lie and not just keep it on the line of play? I feel like it's a lot more pure too. Like there's like a purity aspect that I like about that where it's like play it as it lies. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Because with the sheet of paper, you can be, what is it, like four and a quarter inches off the line of play, right? technically. So why is it four and a quarter and not four and three quarters or five and a quarter? Like, why is it four and a quarter? Just because it's convenient to think of a piece of paper? Where if it's just a line, it's very pure and there's no like subjectivity to it. Mm -hmm. Now, is it true that they planned on just allowing people to flip their discs but they have a big storage warehouse full of minis that they have to get rid of. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but I love that conspiracy theory. (laughs) It's all conspiracy to sell minis. What about just the idea of flipping the disc? Well, if you use a mini, it stops you from inadvertently or, you know, uh, trying to cheat a little bit and flipping it twice. Yeah, double flipping, because your disc could land upside down. Oh, I flipped it. No one saw when you flipped it. I'll flip it again. Or a really aggressive flip that gets you an extra two inches. You know what pisses me off? Oh, sorry. Go for it. No, no, no. I just said, yeah, I was done. (laughs) (laughs) My thing is, let's say you have this throwing putter that you really like, and you're throwing an upshot, and you miss your line. You hit a tree, and it falls, and you want to throw that same putter again, but you want to take your stance behind that disc. You can't mark the back of your disc with your mini. You have to mark the front of it, Mm -hmm. which makes me angry. (laughs) I've seen people try to put it like under the disc. Yeah, you can't do that. You have to mark the front. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But you're only losing like an inch. You're using a full disc. Well, because you can put your toe 11 inches back. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's true. But maybe I wanted to go a foot behind that. You're right. Maybe you wanted a foot (laughs) behind your original line. Right. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It has happened enough to me that I get frustrated with that rule. Why do I have to mark the front? Why can't I mark the back? Just get two of the same putters. You know? Yeah, but no matter what, one of them is going to be different. (laughs) It's going to be different. You're totally right. Shut up, Kenji. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking to a guy who's had the same putter for 12 years. I know, me too. That's the thing. Kenji, you still putting a soft magnet? I still putt with a soft magnet. And then I have nice. a jawbreaker magnet that's a little more stable. <laughs> I'm all about slimming down the number of discs I want to bring with me. I don't want to bring dupes just for dupes' sake. I feel like my strange gift to disc golf and anything really that I'm interested in. Kenji, when's the last time me and you played around together? 
Ooh, I don't know. Maybe years. We've been at the same place, but I don't think we've played around together for quite a while. And I knew that he putted with soft magnets. Like, I don't know why. I just, like, learned everyone's bag and just catalog it. And, like, I don't know, like, why. Yeah. It's kind of like a savant like that. Josh will know, oh, that's Brett's so-and-so disc. I'm like, I didn't even know Brett was throwing that. He's like, yeah, he just got it, like, two months ago. He's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Josh probably knows my bag better than I do right now. <laughs> I probably do. And it's weird. I remember as a kid, before we had, like, computers in my house or whatever, we would get catalogs. Do you guys know like the East Bay catalog? It's like a sporting goods catalog. Sure. And I would just yeah, sit yeah. there and read page after page and like know every item and like the description and like compare and contrast all of them for like no reason at all. I mean, I was interested in sports as a kid, obviously, I kind of wanted the nice gear, but it's just something that like I've always done with certain aspects of my life. And it's really unfortunate because I can't find a way to make money off it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the price is right or something. <laughs> You just need to be Jomez's guy that announces to Ian what the discs are, or, you know, or like on the Pro Tour. <laughs> it's really annoying, too, because I know when they say a disc is like the wrong disc and like that irritates me so much. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to say what the disc is, be right about it or don't say anything at all. I don't know. That's awesome. Anybody watch Idlewild? I watched a little bit of all of it. There's nothing controversial about the tournament. I just find Isaac Robinson's putt so unsettling to watch. It like comes out too early. It's like this really spinny putt. Just It seems like it's always an early release, and it somehow still always hits the basket. When he made the putt in the final round on hole 17, it looked like <laughs> the putt was going to land like 20 short, and it was so strong into the chains. Amazing. It was so bizarre. Chris Villa, he'll do like basketball style putts from like 15 feet and i'm just like it, every time it just makes me like so nervous I'm like <laughs> <laughs> does his disc flip when he does it too i think so or maybe not I'd, I'd have to look people that do it and the disc flips end over end is insane yeah, to me it's crazy it's like what are you doing it's just it always seems like something bad's gonna happen after playing mind kill this year they have mock fives and it was like literally every single putt like even tap outs i like took none of them for granted and like <laughs> focused so hard on everyone. <laughs> Don't worry, Pat said he's going to cut anything that's controversial. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>